we're talking about Haman tonight, Haman's Gambit in Esther 7, uh, Esther 3 rather, 7 through 15. And Esther 3, 7 is sort of the hinge point of the whole book. You, if you have the chart that I passed out last week, the timeline of Esther, you'll notice I have a big blurb at the top about uh, Pure and Purim, which we find in Esther 3, 7 as the sort of the commemorating event of the Feast of Purim in the Israelite calendar. Esther 3, 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. They cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Those, those names will be, I don't know, you don't need to remember the names, but the, the, the dating is important for the months. This is significant, and this is the event that really, when Esther and Mordecai, towards the end of the book, they uh, institute this feast, this is the event that, they're, that is the, the signif signifier of the holiday, Esther 9, 23 and 24. The Jews accepted what had started, they had started to do what Mordecai had written to them. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. Esther, uh, that's Esther 9, 23 and 24. Feast of Purim gets its name, obviously, pure and Purim. The Feast of Purim gets its name from this act, Esther 3, 7. And it's, it's unusual if you don't have in mind the context of lots in the Old Testament, really the whole Bible. And the mechanics of casting lots is the main reason to think about Esther as a book about providence. When we think about lots in the Old Testament, and again, it's really through the whole Bible, but primarily the Old Testament, this was not an unusual thing, especially for the Israelites, and really the rest of the, the world at the time, this was a fairly common thing. Numbers 26, 52, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among, those the land, among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. He's, he's divvying up the land. They're going, they're going to go into Canaan. Uh, of course, this is, this is going to take place later on, but when they go in, this is how they're going to divide it. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list, but the land shall be divided divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. The inheritance shall be divided according to lot between larger and the smaller. The giving of the land, of course, it's proportional. We have larger tribes or smaller tribes. But then, of course, within that land, we have, okay, this family's going to get this part and this family's going to get this part. And how are they determining that? By lot. They're, they're casting lot in some way for that. Now, there's a bunch of ways to do this mechanically. Uh, I think the most, probably the most famous two are the straws where you have uh, all the same, or we have all same length of straws, except one is either longer or shorter, and you present them to somebody, and they're all even up here, but one in here is longer or shorter, and you just pull them out, and then whoever has the different one, they're the one that's chosen. Uh, you can do it with a, stones in a bag. You have all different colored stones, except one. One is, one is white, and the rest are black, and whoever draws the white one, they're the person. There's a number of ways you can do this. We can do it with dice. They didn't have dice in the way that we think of dice, but that is a thing you could do. The point was allowing the me mechanism of decision to be somewhat random so that God would have influence. That it's not humans making the decision. There's the element of chance or randomness is being dictated by God in his supernatural intervention in the material world. Of course, we see this in Jonah 1, 7, and 8. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're in the storm, the ship, the waves are crashing. Oh no, we're all going to die. Whose fault is this? Well, let's, let's all pick a card. Any card, whoever has the high card. I, they didn't pick cards, but that's another way you could do it, right? Whoever draws the high card, they're the one. 
They cast lots. The lot falls, falls on Jonah. They said to him, tell us in whose account this evil has come. And, and of course, he explains that all to them. Nehemiah 1, post-exilic, they come back in Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. The leaders of the people lived in, the, in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. They're all distributed throughout the land of Israel. We need to reoccupy Jerusalem. Who's going to get to live in Jerusalem? Well, we'll pick at random. We're going to cast lots to pick at random. Who gets to come live in Jerusalem? And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. But this is also true in the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament thing. And it kind of makes sense, of course, if we're thinking about the New Testament, the people of Israel as the primary characters of the New Testament, at least at the beginning, they bring this habit forward. Matthew 27, 33, of course, is prophetic. This is not the Israelites, but it is indicative of a general attitude towards this idea of lots, not just in Israel, but throughout the religious world of the day. We see it, of course, in the Babylonian world and the Persian world with Haman. Here, the Romans, when they came to a place called Golgotha, that means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed it with gall, would taste it, he would not drink, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Randomized situation. Acts 1.24. This is, of course, to replace Judas. Judas, he's dead, he hung himself. He, after the whole business of betraying Jesus, need another apostle. We need another guy. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, they narrow it down, show which of these two. They have two. Again, flip a coin. Now, I don't know if they flipped a coin, but I imagine that's probably something similar to what they did. We have the Roman face. We have the numeral face. Flip it up, and whichever one you call it in the air, Matthias, and Matthias calls it, and there it is. The point, dice, straws, stone, is that there has to be some randomizer that humans can't have control of in order to discern the will of the gods, because the humans are not going to do it. It's going to be the gods who decide in Haman's case, the will of the Persian gods, what is he trying to discern as they're casting lots day after day, month after month? For a whole year, they're casting pure before Haman. He's trying to figure out how to destroy the Jews. Now, we don't exactly know what it entails in this. The, the story doesn't go into detail. Uh, but Esther 9, of course, makes it clear. He's casting lots to destroy the Jews. Could be timing. When should I approach the king about this? Or when should I begin to kill the Jews? When, when should we institute this decree? Uh, what, what methodology? Should I, should I go to the king this way or this way? When I, when I go to destroy the Jews, should I, should I try to do it this way or this way? How much money should I offer in my bribe? I don't know. I don't know what Haman's trying to decide. There's any number of things that it could be. Maybe figuring out who. Well, maybe I should have this guy do it in this area and this guy do it in this area. As he's casting pure month after month, he says over and over, he does this over and over to figure out something about when or how or when or why, not why, he, the why is because he's selfish, but the mechanics of his destruction of the Jews. Ironically, Haman does indeed discover the will of the gods in casting of pure, just not the gods he wanted, just not the gods he expected. We think about the idea of casting lots over and over throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. A means of letting something that is physically random take proxy for God's influence and direction. In this case, the lot fell at this particular time. He goes to the king 
And of course, we know how the story is going to play out from there. Maybe this was, and we think about the things that are going on in God's mind at this point. To know when Hazarus is going to be receptive. When is this going to be best for Esther to go to him? When is this going to be best for Mordecai to have the right words to say to Esther? I don't know all the factors. That's kind of the point, because I'm not God. All of the things that he is considering in the story, this is the time. And the use, of course, for us, the question that is, I think, most interesting for us, is what about today? It's clear that God's people use this in either covenant, the covenant of Israel and the covenant of Christ, as a legitimate means of discerning God's will, of allowing God to have influence over the decisions that they're making. I think, of course, the most relevant for us is the decision about who should replace Judas. Now, of course, they went through the due diligence of figuring out, okay, here's the requirements we need. There needs to be this kind of guy. He needs to have these requirements. He needs to have been with us. He needs to have seen Jesus. He needs to have seen the risen Jesus. He needs to have heard the teaching. All of these things that they have ability to discern in their human way of thinking. But at the end of it, we've come up with two guys. Two guys fit these criteria. Who should it be? Well, we're going to flip a coin. And we're going to trust in the moment of the flipping. I don't know if they flipped a coin, but we're going to trust in the moment of the flipping that God will dictate the outcome the way that he wants. And again, if we're thinking about for ourselves, introducing random elements into our decision making, not at the beginning of the process, but at the end of the process, when we've done all that we can to discern the path that God wants us to go. And at the end of the day, there's going to be instances where I've done all I can do in my human way of thinking about things, and I still am not sure what to decide. I've, I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've considered all the options. I've weighed the pros and cons. I've talked to other people. I've, I've talked to people I trust, and I still don't know what to do. Might I suggest this is a biblical example of decision-making? to introduce some random element that we trust that God will decide what needs to be done. But again, that only works if we're living our lives in the overall will of God to the best of our abilities. Returning to Esther then, we see the fruits of casting a peer before Haman. Eventually, after the year, he decides to go to Hazarus. And again, it's not clear in the text how much of this is determined by the casting of lots, how much of this is his own plan. Other than there is a link, that's all we're told, there is some link between the two. Esther 3.8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people. They do not keep the king's laws. That is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king. And you can see the classic layers of deception and cunning. We're going to butter up the king. We're going to sort of deceive and, and sort of guide his decision to what, it wants, what I want it to be. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, they may put it into the king's treasuries. The king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Now, there's several layers. The classic is verbal misdirect and, and sort of directing the king's thoughts. They don't follow your laws. They're not profitable. You know, buttering up, making the same sort of arguments that anyone might make, leading a weak leader. And this is the point. A hazardous time and again, if we've seen nothing else, he is a weak leader. 
So Haman is sort of leading him to the decision he once made. And then, of course, he turns to the time-tested practice of bribery. Now, I'm not sure, you know, you do some research on the money. 10,000 talents is an absurdly ridiculous sum. Some estimates I saw put it as high as a third of the entire product of the, the Persian Empire, which seems ridiculous that Haman would have that much. Maybe he does. Or maybe he's lying. Or it's, maybe he's just sort of making, I'm just going to pay you a, a ridiculous amount of money, king. Or maybe he has no intent to pay at all. It's impossible to say. Other than... When all else fails, Haman is not above resorting to bribery to get his way, right? I'll pay this ridiculous amount of money to the treasury. And there's an interesting linguistic deception here that is impossible to see in the English. And in some ways, this is the downside of translations. Between the word for destroy, abad, and I don't even know if you can see it up there, the difference. You can from this close. I don't know if you can see the difference from there. And I, I tried to do it in such a way that it would, be, it would effectively convey the difference in, of course, the uh, Aramaic, not, of course, English. The difference between the words destroy and enslave, the only difference, and this is true, again, in the original, I, I tried to make it obvious, is the direction of this apostrophe. Boop, that's the only difference. Which, again, in the original, that's the only difference. There's a little, little bit marking at the beginning of the word that if you go this way, it means destroy, and if you go this way, it means enslave. And, of course, in verbal, you're not going to get that difference. You can easily uh, affect the, uh, the, the way you're saying the word to say one thing, and maybe you'd meant the other thing. This is somewhat supported by Esther 7. For we have been sold, me and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, if it had been just as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. We have been sold to be abad, destroyed. If it had just to be for abad, to be enslaved, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther uses the same argument that Haman uses. Haman says, these people are not profitable for you. Esther's point, I would not even bring it up because it's not worth it to the king, except that we're going to be destroyed. Not abod enslaved, abod destroyed. Of course, when we get to the edict, uh, Haman says, okay, do with it what you will. It's up to you. Esther 3.12, the king's scribes were summoned to the 13th day of the, of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and the governors and all over the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Now, in the context of exilic biblical literature, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations, Esther, parts of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're informed, of course, about the irrevocable nature of the decree in Daniel 6, 9, 7 through 9. In Daniel 6, 7 through 9, that's the whole business. They don't like Daniel. King, you should make a decree in the manner of the Persians that you can only be you're the only one that can be worshipped for 30 days. And then, of course, the king's like, oh, no, but I love Daniel. Why did I do that? And then he has to throw him in the lion's den. And, of course, he's delivered in the lion's den. And, and the king comes out and he's like, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. Because the king couldn't just revoke it. We see a similar thing here. It's not explicit in the text of Esther, but it is going to be a similar sort of a thing as we go through. The king makes this decree, and there it is. Now it's set in stone, can't be revoked. And it's not stated in the text, but the 13th of the first month is the day before Passover. So the Jews, they're presumably in their country getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And the day before comes this edict, we're going to kill all of you. There's a tragic irony 
in the minds of the Jews, I think, as they're thinking about this event in Exodus, that really the institution of them as a nation, the day before they're about to celebrate that, a new decree comes down, we're going to kill all of you. You're all going to be destroyed. Too bad for you. Esther 3 verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy Abad, but then we get two extra words. To kill and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th of the 12th month. 12 months down the line. 11 months down the line. Uh, of course, this is the first month when the decree is made. And one of the interesting things about this, the decree is made in the first month to be enacted at the end of the year. Now, maybe that's preparation, right? You've got, you got to spread this word all throughout the, the nation. You've got to send it to all the different provinces. You've got to, you got to send it all over, and they've got to get ready, and they've got to prepare. So maybe that's the point. But it is, a, it is a long way in the future. To plunder their goods, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The courier was sent out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king Haman, and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Wait, what? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? This is ridiculous. Why would we kill whatever percentage of the population that it is? And even if Ahasuerus had been tricked by Haman's verbal argument, right, maybe he makes this, maybe he doesn't, the decree in writing leaves no room for confusion. We're going to destroy, but what does that mean? We're going to kill and annihilate. What do we take from the story? This section of the story. This is the uh, sort of the, the set up the conflict, right? We've, we've moved all the players into position. And then chapter 3, 7 through 15, we're establishing the conflict of the story. The danger that needs to be overcome. The difficulty that needs to be conquered. We've already established the inconsistency, of course, between Mordecai and Esther's hiding of heritage. Mordecai tells Esther... Don't reveal you're a Jew. But Mordecai, he doesn't, he doesn't follow that. He's just like, I'm not going to bow to you, Haman. I'm a Jew, which we read last week. If Ahasuerus had been, made any inquiry at all into Haman's possible motivations, there's a couple of things he would have easily discovered. Haman comes to the king. There's these people here. You should kill them all. Ahasuerus just has to do like the bare minimum due diligence to figure out, one, that Mordecai disrespected Haman by not bowing. And Mordecai is a Jew, so maybe Haman's just upset at Mordecai. It would not have taken much for Ahasuerus to figure that out. Just, just the bare minimum asking around, hey, why do you think Haman wants to do this? Oh, don't you know, king? Last week, or it really would have been like a year ago, last year, Mordecai didn't bow to Haman and he hated it. I mean, it just wouldn't have taken much for Ahasuerus to figure it out. And then as a consequence, if he was making any sort of connections at all, to figure out that the danger that this edict puts his queen in. Right? My queen Esther, who I love so much. She's so beautiful. Hooray for Esther. Oh, wait. If I sign this decree, that puts her under threat of death. Like the bare minimum of any responsibility whatsoever, Ahasuerus. But we've already shown that Ahasuerus does the bare minimum. Even less than the bare minimum. He refuses to investigate Vashti's complaint. Vashti, wants to, he wants her to come dance, and she doesn't want to. And he doesn't really ask why or make any inquiry whatsoever. Just, how dare you, Vashti? Away with you. Uh, he doesn't, he just accepts the replacement. Hey, we should replace Vashti, because you're so sad, Ahasuerus. He's, he's like a child. In so many ways, Ahasuerus is like a child. And this is the point. When it comes to receiving counsel... Are we just blindly accepting it like children? 
when people say, hey, you should do X, Y, or Z, you should do this thing, you should do this thing, whatever is the case may be, do we have any thought whatsoever, why is this person suggesting I do that? What are going to be the consequences for this? Is there any sort of thought whatsoever? Or do we just accept what people say blindly? Now, of course, Ahasuerus is contrasted and complimented by Esther, who, as we saw last week, is elevated and commended because she's willing to listen to others. There's an interesting nuance in the story here. Esther's, one of primary characteristics of Esther is she listens to counsel. She listens to Haggai. She listens to Mordecai. She accepts their advice. So it's not that you shouldn't ever listen to counsel. The point is not to just not listen or to listen blindly, but to do so responsibly. Who do you listen to? Why do you trust them? What is the due diligence that you do to figure out if the advice that people have for us is worth it? Because there is this interesting dichotomy in Scripture. Proverbs 11.4, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs actually has it. I thought about doing more, but we don't need more. Proverbs, uh, numerous times, the point of the book of Pro one of the points of the book of Proverbs, listen to counsel. Don't just try to figure it out on your own. Listen to what other people have to say. Except we're kind of in the whole pickle that we're in as a species because one person, actually two people, just blindly listened to what somebody else had to say. Genesis 3, 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit that is in the tree of the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Are we sure about that? You're not surely going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Esther allows what she, or not Esther, Eve, both E words, Eve allows what she wants, she sees the fruit, it's good to look at, good to eat, to it force her or lead her to just accept what the serpent says. And then not only does Eve do that, Adam does that. Here, Adam, eat this thing. Well, Eve, this looks suspiciously like the fruit that we're not supposed to eat. But okay, I'll do it anyway. Who do we listen to? Why do we listen to them? And what level of responsibility do we bear for accepting the guidance of others? Might be our parents. Might be somebody, a mentor you have at church. Might be a teacher at school. Might be even me. Why are the Bereans commended in Acts 17? Not because they just blindly accepted what was said, but because they searched to see whether these things were so, but making sure that that's God. And so we will conclude with a brief consideration of how we let God affect and direct our lives. Isn't that the point of the lots? The casting of lots all throughout the Old Testament, really the whole Bible? The point of the casting of lots is to allow God to direct. Not that we're doing it blindly. We're figuring out to the best of our abilities we're going through the process to determine this needs to be what it is. But at the end of the day, we need God to help direct and guide. We'll end with Proverbs 3.1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of, of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord, not your preacher, not your elders, not your parents, not your co-workers, not your boss. Trust in the Lord 
with all your hearts and do not lean on your own understanding. Does that mean I don't trust the elders? No. Does it mean I don't trust my parents? No. But it does mean they are secondary in the trust that I give them. And it does mean that whenever anybody that's a human tells me to do things, I'm checking it and I'm making sure. And I'm ensuring that the advice that I'm listening to is going to help me do the first part of this. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I appreciate the contrast between Ahasuerus and Esther. Because ultimately Esther is not wise in her own eyes. She listens to the advice of Haggai when she goes into the king. She accepts the judgment of Mordecai. Hey, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. And then later on when Mordecai comes to her again, hey, you need to go talk to the king. But I'm afraid he's going to kill me. Or he might. She doesn't know he will. That's the point of the fear. But Mordecai's point is... You still need to do it because this doom is going to come upon you too. And so she decides, I don't know if she's thinking about the Lord in that moment or not. It's not explicit in the text, but she does decide that there are things that are worth being afraid of more than others. She listens to the advice. Contrasted with the Hazarus, who also listens to advice, but does so blindly without any thought or any care or any judgment. To exercise that big D word, discernment. And as a congregation, I hope that we can help one another in that. I hope that we are giving each other counsel that accords with God's will. That we are helping one another come to a knowledge of the truth. That we are helping one another be closer to God.